Welcome back to the Gamerpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Carlton. Today, I have a very special guest with us. I have Tom Biscalia. Hey there, Tom. How's it going? Great. Doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So where are you hail from, Tom? Uh, right now, I live on Vashon Island, which is an island outside of Seattle, Washington. Ferry access. Uh, it's uh, kind of paradise here. Beautiful. All right. So, Tom, I don't like to do a lot of small chat or small talk. That was the extent of it. So why don't we begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, well, I'm uh, the game attorney. I've been uh, worked in the game industry for, well, I represented my first developer in 91. I guess that puts me 30 years uh, representing game developers. I've represented over 200 independent video game studios, uh, mostly small, a lot of startups. Some people you've probably heard of, uh, the Romeros and people like that. And uh, a lot of people you've never heard of, uh, but always, uh, pretty much always on the on the developer side of relationships with publishers and uh, and mentoring them and helping them bring their uh, bring their games to, to market, you know, and trying to trying to sort of deal with some of the stuff that creative people would prefer not to deal with. Beautiful. All right. And that's, that gives us a lot to chat about. But before we do that, I start every interview with a single question. So I'm going to ask you just like I ask everybody else. So on a scale of one to 10, 10 being high, how weird are you, Tom? Ask my wife. Uh, no, uh, let's see. I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, uh, six, seven, maybe, uh, you know, there's some things that I'm not weird about. Uh, if, if I look at my life globally, it's probably a seven. Right now, I'm probably more a five or a six, you know. Okay, middle of the road. I like it. I usually put myself about a five. I'm not not traffic cone on the head crazy, but I'm also not like just boring. <laughs> okay, uh, now this is the Gamerpreneur podcast. And uh, so I do need your gaming cred. You've, you've been around the block, but when did you first start playing video games? Uh, Atari. Uh, I remember the plastic stick on the stick of plastic on the screen Pong game on a on a on an old style t television. Uh, keep in mind, I I mean I started watching TV in the fifties, uh, so uh, I remember a lot of a lot of things. But uh, I mean, it's, the first console was was an Atari, I believe, and uh, and that was uh, mostly toyish in my head. Um, I really got into video games in my 20s uh, when I was living in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Florida, and I, I got an Apple IIe and I was playing the, uh, the Star Trek uh, uh, text game, which was uh, which would consume my life. Uh, you know, I'd get all dressed to go out to hit the clubs and then I'd sit down just for a few minutes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and come out of the game at three o'clock in the morning saying, well, the bars are all closed now. I guess I'll just go to bed. I think how much uh, money you saved. Yeah. <laughs> Fortune, yeah. Lots of, yeah, I avoided a lot of trouble that way, I guess. But I guess that's that's where it was. And then uh, then, I, then I went through a hiatus where I didn't play much at all. Um, and then, uh, you know, I uh, dropped back in, uh, went, to, went to finished undergraduate school, went to law school. I uh, had a law practice uh, in Miami at the time. This is in the mid '90s, uh, early '90s, I guess. I got a client who said if I didn't have email, I couldn't be his lawyer anymore. Uh, so, uh, so I got email, and I ended up getting a bunch of computers. One of them was uh, was a basically a gaming rig for my house at the time. I mean, you know, it was a 386 with a, I think I had a 14 inch 
monitor. It was really big at the time. You were rocking. But I did have these, <laughs> did have these giant JBL speakers, uh, towers on either side of the monitor, and I started and I got into uh, games right away. And I remember going and waiting at the store the day Quake came out. Um, you know, waiting at the at the at the game store to get my first disc, uh, and uh, that was a lot of fun. I was playing. Uh, playing MechWarrior and M-Player, which was uh, one of the early uh, multiplayer platforms. And then I got into Quake and uh, got in with a small group of people playing an obscure mod, uh, Thunderwalker, which was a mod of a mod. Um, and that's what really drew me into it. I, I started, I learned everything I know about building computers because I was a gamer. And I think a lot of us have done that. You know, I, I still build my own rigs. Uh, and then uh, I went to E3 in 1998 when in Atlanta, but only as a gamer, not not as a lawyer. Certainly not as a lawyer, although I'm still friends with people I met in the lobby of the hotel there, which is so weird. Uh, anyway, uh, and then the following year, I went to the Game Developers Conference, and uh, I think I got involved in the Computer Game Developers Association around the same time, and which became the IGDA, International Game Developers Association, and I uh, founded the South Florida chapter and uh, got involved, I was involved with the, intimately involved with the organization. I ran South Florida, I moved to Seattle, I ran the Seattle chapter. I spent three terms on the board of directors, over nine, nine years on the board of directors. I uh, created uh, and co-founded the IGDA Charitable Foundation uh, and just did a whole bunch of work. That was the chair of the IGDA for, for one year, off the treasurer and the vice chair and went through all that stuff. Uh, and that, that, you know, getting elected to the board, it was really when I felt that I'd been accepted by developers, you know, as you know, if you're not the people who actually make the games, you kind of feel a little like an outsider. And when I got elected to the board, all of a sudden, I felt like they'd, they'd accepted me as, as part of the tribe, I guess. And at the time, you know, back in, geez, the late 90s, early, early 2000s, it was much more tribal than it is now, I think, um, you know, there was... It was all, it was all gamers. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of people in the industry who are valuable parts of the game industry, but they're not gamers. You know what I mean? They, I mean, they could be selling games or selling toasters. They don't really care because that's what they they just do that, right? And then there's the hardcore people who are gamers who are there almost because they couldn't do anything else because they love games so much they they wouldn't want to do anything else. Um, and I think there's sort of the, that overlapping circles and there's the people who are gamers and in the industry. There's a lot of gamers who aren't in the industry and then there's a lot of gamers who are, there's gamers in the industry and there's a lot of people who aren't gamers in the industry, I guess. So I'm kind of in that, that group and uh, yeah, so I, I guess Quake got me here, I suppose. Um, and uh, the rest, you know, once I started to hang out with developers, I realized that, uh, that my skill set of, you know, uh, growing up in a business environment, uh, my father was a businessman, and I grew up around business people, and then going to law school. So I had this business and legal acumen, and I realized that the, a lot of the creative developers uh, really were kind of lacking in those areas, either because they were so focused on their art that they weren't paying attention, or they just didn't want to deal with it, or I don't know. But I felt that my all of a sudden at one point early on, I realized that my skill set had a could had a great deal of value to these people. So I started working with them, and I found ways to work with them that were a uh, little little crazy. Very, I mean, I probably burned hundreds of thousands of dollars of attorney time. Um, 
But all that time I spent playing Quake or, you know, my wife would say, why are you wasting your time with this? All of a sudden is no longer a waste of time. And at the bottom of my resume, uh, it says uh, Supreme Warlord Fates Minions, you know, which is my clan, F8S.com. And some of the guys are still playing together. I was, I was playing PUBG with them last year. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got here, I guess. I love it. <laughs> I'm still sitting here. I wrote a book thanks to my time playing World of Warcraft. But I don't have it on my resume quite yet. Maybe, maybe someday I'll come go back for it, that. man. <laughs> you know, seriously, I, it's funny because that says something to people of the culture. You know that I founded a clan and played Quake. You know, and and I don't know means something to me it's very important to me maybe maybe it's not important to anybody else <laughs> i think it matters though all right yeah. uh, what do you play today now though tom quake was a long uh, time ago well i played some valheim still trying to find go back to my dead body and collect my stuff in valheim <laughs> i'm i'm not very good at it uh i'll go and i'll play for a couple of days I, I i've never played with them. i mean i've seen these guys and they have these beautiful stone castles i i played with my son for a while he showed me the game originally and he's got you know he and his team they've got 50 portals and they've got this big stone castle and everything and there he's hunting for silver in the mountains right and i still can't get any iron because i'm afraid to go into those caves i just finally got to the swamp anyway uh yeah, so I've been playing Valheim, and then I, you know, and I play. Uh, I've been playing uh, uh, Headcount, one of my clients' VR games. I'm helping with that. It's out on. It's like, it's still in develop. It's in development on on. It's in early access, which is kind of weird. It's like public development, which is always scary. You know, you're putting a game. You know, it's not done, right? You put it out there and then let people play it. And it's, uh, but uh, it's pretty. It's pretty fun. And uh, and I I put I have a couple of VR headsets that I play and I. I was, uh, I've been playing a little bit of uh, Spider-Man. Uh, I was, actually, I was helping my, my four-year-old grandson play Spider-Man last weekend. Watching a four-year-old play games who's actually good at it, it's pretty <laughs> scary. Because, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I suspect you're an immigrant in games that you, you don't, you weren't born, you weren't raised where games were around you all the time when you were coming up, right? It's oh no, I was a born and bred gamer, age two. Really nice, uh -huh. yeah. So you're a native. See, I'm a, I'm an immigrant. I came here. I came to to, to this glorious country from somewhere else, right? Uh, and uh, uh, actually, from rock and roll. That's how I got here. And I, I was there first, and then I came to this wonderful world of creative craziness. Um, but watching somebody that age just rip it. I mean, he couldn't read the instructions, so he was having a little trouble, uh, but he could understand the symbols on the PlayStation, and uh, and he was kind of kicking ass. Uh, he was good at battles. The puzzles he needed help with, but, uh, you know. I'm uh, hoping my four-year-old can get there. She can barely do Mario left, right? <laughs> no, and my nine-year-old granddaughter is just nuts for VR. Every time she comes here, she makes me set up the, the, the uh, Valve Index for her, and she's can't, haven't gotten her to play Alex yet. You know, I, I showed it to her and she said, no, I don't want to play. <laughs> but uh, the carnival games and the fun games, uh, she, actually, she was playing headcount and having a blast with it, which was really weird. The, it's so nice. You know, that happened. And then I, I so I get on my I get on a discord chat with the team all, with that particular team at monochrome all the time. And uh, I said, hey, oh, by the way, my nine year old granddaughter played the game and she loved it. And, and they're just, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, developers, when they're when they're down in the I talk about it being they're sort of like they're in a 
they're gophers, right? And they're down in the gopher hole and they're working away. And, and a lot of times they don't poke up, they don't poke up and look their heads around. I had a client who worked for two and a half years on a, on a, uh, a Nintendo for the old Nintendo handheld. And by the time he was ready, he poked his head out, the counts, that particular platform was dead, right? <laughs> because he wasn't looking. Like, I keep telling these guys, you really ought to poke out every, you know, three months or so, make sure you know where the market is, where it's heading, you know, what's important, what used to be important may not be important anymore. Uh, anyway, so that was really gratifying for them to just have that that little bit of feedback. Uh, uh, yeah, so anyway, that's that, that's kind of, that was kind of okay. neat. But okay, that's, that's what I'm playing and what people around me are playing, I guess. Beautiful. All right, let's get over to the preneur part. Um, you're the game attorney and you've been the game attorney that you said for what, 30 years or so. But let's talk about your professional background. How did you end up here? Where, where did you start out at? Well, let's see. Uh, well, I, uh, I graduated from Georgetown University Law Center in 1985. And I came out, worked in a big corporate law firm in Miami. Uh, it was pretty cool. Did litigation work. I was a trial lawyer. Uh, after a couple years there, I uh, went with a small antitrust boutique, which didn't work. Uh, but it did show me that I could run a small firm all by myself. You know, I went from like 100. When you're in a 100-man law firm, the idea of just hanging. Well, you, know, you, you went to law school. You understand this. The idea of hanging your shingle is frightening. You can't imagine what it's like, right? And then when you get in a, a small boutique firm with, you know, four lawyers, you realize that it's not that hard and you can just do it. So I, I, I had a very kind of weird experience where the uh, lead attorney, instead of letting me work in an, an available window office on a different floor, decided I should move into the room with the copier to work as a lawyer. And after being at a big firm where they used to bring coffee around in the afternoon, I just, you know, it was too much. I couldn't swallow it. Um, especially after bringing in like a lot of money to the firm. I brought a client with me and we've worked on the client together. And then I left, uh, should have left with the client anyway. Uh, so I just sublet an office from a couple lawyers and, uh, I was doing primarily, uh, commercial litigation stuff. I got on the criminal justice act panel, which is where, you know, uh, where they say, if you can't afford a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you while in federal court. If there's uh, two defendants in a case, the federal public defender can't represent both of them because of a potential conflict of interest in case it turns into what's called a rat race, uh, which is where somebody's looking to make a deal. And so now all of a sudden you have conflicting interests. Uh, so uh, I did a couple of, uh, I think my first case was a, a three month racketeering trial, 15 year RICO deal. Oh my God, it was amazing. And some of the best criminal defense lawyers. It was like a master class in cross-examination of government witnesses, right? And it was great. It was really wonderful. Uh, and then uh, and then I started picking up those cases, which was, I, at, at the time, frankly, I, it was the part of the work I loved. I loved being in trial, you know, being in a courtroom, because I'd been a musician in the, you know, in between. And so... It was I was feeding that performance right, and uh, and so it, it it sort of satisfied both my my uh, my desire to 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 perform and um, and also that that uh, desire to be in combat. You know, I mean, it, within the rules of the court, 
you're allowed and encouraged to be as aggressive as you can without breaking the rules. Not to say I haven't been threatened with and held in contempt of court for pushing the rules a little too hard, but uh, it was glorious. I mean, it was really was was a great deal of fun. I uh, love it. Yeah, yeah. and but uh, I couldn't. In order to succeed as a you know, so I was doing fine with my court appointed cases because the court would give them to me. <laughs> but when it came time to go out and try to get private work, which is what you have to do to make a living doing that. Uh, I could not lie to these people about what their expectations should be, you know, and if they had a choice between hiring a lawyer who was telling them that they knew the judge or they knew the prosecutor and they got a way to get them off or some guy who says you're fucked. Oh, shit. You can delete that if you want. But, you know, somebody goes in and and tells them that uh, that they're going to go to prison for five years, no matter what you do, because in some cases it was obvious. Um, they'd pick the guy who told him he could get him off, even though he couldn't. And he knew it and I knew it, but I couldn't say it. So I ended up uh, soliciting, a. I had a couple of friends who'd been using me for their corporate stuff. And I realized that it would be a good idea to sort of be, maybe be outside general counsel for uh, clients who needed legal work, but did, didn't have enough to hire an attorney full-time. So I would be their, I would be their guy. Right. And, uh, uh, that's how that that's how I got into the internet. Uh, the guy who asked me to told me I had to have uh, email in my and or be or he'd fire me, right? Uh, I went to him for help just for suggestions on how to market myself to small companies, and he hired me, which was kind of weird. But uh, that's what got me going. That's what got me that first gaming rig, and uh, I'm still in touch with Steve Hall. He's crazy. He's, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what I don't know what else to say. That's kind of how it started, and then. You know, it just grew from there. The more more developers I met, uh, I think the IGDA was really instrumental in getting me in the ground floor. And at the time, people say, you know, how can I do what you do? I get in line. That's what I did. But at the time I got in line, there was maybe two guys in front of me. And now there's now there's literally hundreds and hundreds of young lawyers who want to get into the industry. And when they ask me, I say, well, I mean, actually, there are some ways to do it, but. A lot, lot, lot of, lot of positions in-house now that there weren't before, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, I know I have like a whole bunch of people who Epic ate a whole bunch of lawyers just recently, not for their litigation, but just for their operational stuff. Absolutely. Okay. So, now, Tom, on the entrepreneur side, so you, that's that's an incredible journey. Um, you said you were in, in music first, and you mentioned rock and roll. Um, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about that in a moment. But so you you started out as a litigation attorney, you went into more outside counsel for developers. What makes you special or unique? Because, you know, there are thousands of attorneys and every single, every six months, you know, law schools are spitting out thousands and thousands more attorneys. What makes a good attorney in this space? What is required of an attorney to do the right job for their client? Well, part of it is who's the client? What do they need? I guess part of it is, you know, knowing what they need. Uh, I just had a guy reach out to me and he's a, he's a successful uh, real estate agent and he's got this really cool idea for a game. And I, I actually agree with him. And so, uh, you know, I mean, so he hired me and I'm helping him because he doesn't understand the industry, doesn't understand how it works. He didn't even know, he thought if he wanted to make this game that he had, that he had, and he's, he's, he's been, doing tabletop games for a long time, right? So he understands 
rule sets and and how to make how to make a game right and understanding how to design a game is a huge thing a lot of people think game design is having a good idea for a game which is no that's a good idea for a game that's not game design you know game design is understanding the rules the progressions the blocks all that stuff uh, uh that i don't understand but i know i know what it isn't it's not just a good idea for a game anyway uh so he has he has the puzzles and he's got sort of this this really great uh, way to handle it and a and a good a good hook on it I think, uh, but he doesn't know anything about the industry and I said well you know if you're going to be the the designer, you don't need to do that he, he's saying and so I've you know he learned Unity, right, so he thinks he's ready to make his game and I said, dude you don't need to do the code you don't need to do the art, you know you, you can get people to do that. It's just a matter of finding the right people to do it in a in a way that's that you can handle financially. You know, if if you if you can't afford to pay them, then you have to find people who are willing who believe in your project as much as you do and are willing to put in the sweat equity, and then you do a rev share deal. And I've done a lot of that. I've done I've helped people build their companies based solely on rev share deals, where they just and and there's a way to do it, and there's a way to make sure it's fair and everybody's covered. Uh, so. A lot of weird stuff like that. Uh, I guess I, I think I'd like to think that in terms of representing talent, meaning the development studios and publishing deals, I don't think there's anybody better than I am. And I don't, I just really don't. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think that. That's the attitude things. to have. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, it's, uh, I don't think there's anybody better. I, I, there's other people who might disagree with me, but that's because they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> but there's other things I don't do. You know, if I don't like, I don't do litigation anymore, uh, in spite of the fact that I'm a former trial lawyer. Uh, but I, I have relationships with firms that do that sort of thing for me, uh, and and uh, I don't do mergers and acquisitions uh, because I don't have a securities law background. Uh, but I have people that I can refer my clients to on that stuff. So I think one of the one of my one of one of the things I know is I know the industry. I've been embedded in it for a long time. Um, and I also know what I don't know. And if I don't know it, I don't do it. Okay. And I think that's yeah. a problem with a lot of lawyers, especially young lawyers who are trying to learn how to do stuff is they're going to take a case because they need to work. And then, and then I end up having to fix it later. <laughs> but it's still, you know what, having a bad lawyer is still probably better than not having a lawyer. And I have to fix a lot of that stuff too. Absolutely. Okay. Now, Tom, you've essentially helped develop like the legal side of this entire industry. You've been in it from nearly the very beginning. What are some of the things that you've seen pop up that like nobody had their eye on at first and that have kind of been smoothed over since? Jeez. I think the transition from the traditional publisher model where publishers controlled access to the marketplace uh, to direct access to the audience through digital distribution. I think that caught a lot of people on the publishing side off off, off guard. Uh, I mean, I was looking for it. I, I had the good fortune of representing, I think, the second or third third party game distributed on Steam back when Steam was only there was a second one released. It was Red Orchestra by a. Uh, uh, by uh, Tripwire Games, and they're still out there, and they're still still making games. So that's great. Uh, but it was like nobody else had, was there yet, and and this was back when you know when Steam was like sort of like I called it AOL for games. It was really clunky. 
but they were a bunch of brilliant engineers and they just kept iterating it until they got it right. Um, but I didn't, and I told my client, I said, they're not, there's no reason, there's no reason for them to take your game. The, uh, their game Red Orchestra was an Eastern Front World War II multiplayer game, right? And Valve had Day of Defeat, which is a World War II multiplayer game, right? And uh, Valve had the Source Engine, and their game was built on Epic's Unreal Engine. Uh, they'd won the Epic on Make Something Unreal contest the prior year with their mod. And um, I just said, you know, there's no reason they would take it. You know, you get most of your players are going to come from Counter-Strike and they, they, they have the whole Counter-Strike audience is captive on Steam. Why would they let you in that garden, right? And uh, John Gibson, the head of the head of uh, Tripwire said, well, Tom, what do we got to lose? And at this point, we'd been in negotiation with Midway for five months and they couldn't get their marketing department to green like the game because they didn't see it at E3. In spite of the fact there'd been like 400,000 downloads of the mod, <laughs> just like, <laughs> that's what happens when you have non-gamers making decisions, right? Uh, so uh, John said, well, what have we got to lose? And I said, you got nothing to lose. And he sent it and apparently Gabe looked at it and said, this is, yeah, this, we'd love to have it. And uh, they were e really easy to deal with back then. I mean, it was like dealing with another developer. How do you um, how do you feel NFTs are going to go in this space? A lot of people are talking about it. Um, I think it's something I probably need to understand a little better, uh, to be honest, especially the contractual aspect of it. Excuse me. Um, I mean, I, I have people that I, I do a Wednesday night on my on my Discord server. A bunch of us get together and we bullshit. I mean, we talk, have discussions, high high end discussions. <laughs> I mean, look, at there's a lot of crazy stuff going on there, too. But um, NFTs have been a topic of discussion, uh, just like uh, Clubhouse on the phone has been a discussion and NFTs and all sorts of crazy stuff. But uh, I know people who are basically building NFTs, just like, you know, like a year or two ago, people were building uh, uh, blockchain coins into their games and stuff. And that, I, I never that never really got traction. They're, but they're talking about, you know, having gameplay elements, characters and things like that that are NFTs then building it right into the building it into the model for the game from the ground up, um, which is intriguing. I don't know. There's I mean, there's I read something this morning that said there's been a 90 percent drop in NFTs in the last month. Because it was crazy there for a minute. Uh, but then again, you look at what the uh, NBA Top Shot is doing. And what they have, they don't have million dollar NFTs. What they have is $25 NFTs of your favorite player. Mm -hmm. And they and they're a limited run of 10,000, <laughs> right? And they're making millions and millions of dollars with it. So, you know, you know, anytime you see that sort of action, I suppose there's you can't ignore it. Uh, but like anything, it's additive. You know, I, I, I've been through this too many times. You know, PC games are dead because the consoles are here now. And then uh, let's see, uh, iOS is going to be the end of, of games for PCs and consoles. And Facebook games are the answer to everything. You know, and to me, it's it, it, the silly part is it's like people look at this like we have uh, we've got limited resources here. Right. And we don't. This is this is intellectual property. 
This is imagination. What's the limit on imagination? There isn't one. So it's all additive. If uh, NFTs can make can make uh, become an element of a successful monetization model for games, I think it's great. Um, is it crazy? Maybe. Does it work? Yeah. It's certainly pushing people into uh, 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 the the connection between NFTs, which uses blockchain to lock in to lock the uh, digital asset, which I think is a really cool thing. Tying it to Ethereum the way it's been tied to Ethereum or or to any sort of uh, uh, cryptocurrency, I'm not sure about that part because I do not. I'm not a cryptocurrency fan. Okay. All right, Tom. I want to get a little more personal if I can. Um, You see, I actually believe we learn the most in our life from our failures, not necessarily our successes. Because if you succeed at the first thing you try, like you don't really learn it, right? You just get a big ego. But if you fail, you got to take a look at it. You got to figure out what went wrong, be able to iterate and move forward and succeed the next time. So I'd like to ask you, what do you consider your biggest failure in life? And what did you learn from it? Uh, I guess there was a point when I was, I mentioned that I was playing rock and roll music in my twenties. I'd gone through divorce. uh, I was writing songs, uh, had an opportunity to go from Seattle. I was in Seattle at the time and uh, had an opportunity to go to go down to California and a couple of couple of ideas I had one was to go to California and work there and I didn't really want to go to the LA music scene um, and at one point I actually contemplated I was a bass player at the time I contemplated uh, selling off my electric bass and buying a stand-up bass and moving to Paris and playing jazz you want to regret that's probably a big regret you know I mean just basically I love music. I love making music. I love playing music. And I probably, uh, I feel bad for not pursuing it, I guess, because I felt it was a, a talent, uh, an unfulfilled talent, I guess. Okay. Um, and uh, I don't know what I learned from it because, you know, what, what do you learn from that sort of thing that you should, shouldn't abandon what you love? That's that's yeah. a good lesson right there. Yeah. All right. On the flip side, I don't yeah. I don't want to end on a yeah. I'm going like to start crying soon. <laughs> uh, what is something that you're working to improve on yourself today? Um, actually, I'm working on a on a song that I wrote a couple last week. <laughs> you're still pursuing your passion. Look at that. I do. Yeah. Well, what happened is I I you know I had all this stuff. Uh, cancel. That's oh, jeez. Uh, sorry, my Alexa is trying to tell me something. Uh, so what happened is, uh, uh, I got a, I got a, a resonator guitar, which is a, a guitar that has a metal resonator. It's actually a metal resonator. I really like it. And it's got a really great sound. So I was messing around with it last Wednesday night after the, after my get together on, on discord. And, uh, I was a little baked at the time and I came up with this riff. And so I recorded it. And you kind of inspired this because I, I I was getting ready to record with you, and I said, "Oh, I should record this." So I like I recorded this very very really rough version of it, and I mean it's sloppy, it's it's like a sloppy drum. And I and I thought to myself at the time, you know, all I have to do is play this a hundred more times, and it might be pretty good. So I've been playing it every day, and I, I'm I'm counting the days, and at the end of a hundred days, I'm going to record it again. And then I'll have this, you know, uh, rough draft finished version uh, to look at. So actually, that's kind of that's that's my current project. Um, and, and, you know, and I'm also this this real estate guy that I'm mentoring is he's one of my projects because I'm, I'm trying to connect him with people who may be able to help him. Uh, and I've got, you know, the guys at, at Monochrome or 
I, I hooked them up with a dear friend of mine who works at Oculus, and we're trying to get them vetted for the uh, for the Quest platform. I mean, I got a, and I got I got the uh, the windlass for my sailboat's taken apart because it jammed the other day, and so I've got parts soaking. And uh, what else? And my bees are doing okay. I got a beehive in the backyards. So <laughs> I have plenty of things to keep me busy, and I help my wife in the garden. Uh, it's you know, I've always I've never been in this for the money. I don't think being the game attorney is a great way to get rich. I may be wrong, but I don't think so. Um, but it's a great way to work with really talented people uh, that are really smart and fun and open. And, uh, and I, I, I just love the people I work with. Uh, and it's and but my my way has always been more about lifestyle than the money anyway. I love it. All right. Tom, this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much. How do people find you? Where would they reach out to you? Your website, all that, please. Gameattorney.com. That's my brand. That's why they call me the game attorney, because <laughs> I got the domain first. Uh, yeah, it's it's the information's on there. And uh, I, I, I'm not, I don't have, you know, uh, pretty open, easy, easily accessible. Just look for me around. I think there's a link to my Discord server there if people want to jump on and say hi. Sure, I reached out to you on LinkedIn. So, yeah, yeah, well, I'm definitely on LinkedIn, and I'm, I, you know, I have a Twitter account, both T H O M B U S C and Game Attorney. Don't use them much. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but I don't go there often. I used to go there a lot. Now I don't because I realized that it was stupid and a waste of time, and it got so ugly. So, uh, yeah, but I, I've actually migrated my law practice almost completely onto Discord. Very cool. Uh, because, well, my clients are there, duh. And with, uh, you know, it, it just, I was on, you know, I was doing, uh, so the GDC every year, the Game Developers Conference, for those who don't, those who don't know what that is, uh, every year been going since, well, like I said, to a 2090, uh, 1999, I think, almost every year, every year, I think. So I would go there and I'd get a suite in the hotel. Right. And then I would load it up with liquor and I would and, and I would talk to then say, oh, yeah, Microsoft has a party for three hours. I have a party that starts Sunday and goes till Saturday morning. Right. <laughs> and it was it was the after party. And then I would I would clean up in the morning and let my clients use it for meetings during the day. So it's kind of a nice thing. Uh, and then that evolved. And then a couple of years ago, one of my friends, this is going to be it's a bit of a story, but it's kind of worth it. So one of my friends says, they have the they have the presidential suite in the hotel I'm in. I'm going, wow, this is so cool. And uh, Tim asks, says, I've got a bottle of 54 year old scotch. And I said, well, I said, well, Tim, if you bring it down to my suite, I'll I'll invite people and I say that they can only come if they bring a bottle of scotch that's at least 18 years old. And we'll all get to we'll do a tasting. It'll be really fun. We'll do this on Wednesday night. He says, okay. Well, he didn't show. But in the process, I got enough people there so that we had, like, I think the first year we had about 74 years worth of scotch. What I did is I added up, you know, so somebody bought a 24, a 22, an 18, an 18. You know, so I added it all up and I got to, so, so the next year, so now, I, now I've got scotch night thing. This is fun, right? So I start doing that and that became a thing. I think I did it consistently for about five or six years. Last year, the last year I did it was 2019. We had, I believe, 470 years of scotch 
That's pretty decent. <laughs> you know? I mean, one year we got I got closed down at nine o'clock by the Intercontinental Hotel. I never forgave them for that. Next year they didn't care. I don't know. It was pretty crazy. I think I was on the floor with somebody in management. Uh, but uh, then, of course, I can't do this because we're not having a GDC, right? So I started doing this Wednesday night thing uh, on Zoom. Uh, and then somebody tried to play, somebody tried to share a screen with a video on it. And as you know, you probably run into this, uh, Zoom blocks music. If you don't, you have to click a little checkbox. Yeah, it said, I own it or something. Well, anyway, yeah, but you can't if you don't. And, uh, and I didn't want to bother with that. So I, somebody suggested I try Discord and I just, I like the, uh, the, the, I think the platform is just much more robust. And then the guys at Monochrome started asking me to come in to show to do their show up at their scrims from time to time. They do a daily scrim, right? It's a virtual team. And so I did that and I started realizing that, well, this is silly. I should just get a server. So I set up a server and basically moved my practice there. So I monitor. It's it's not open right now because I'm talking to you, but it will be as soon as it closed. And I, I just find it to be great. And I, and I do these, these Wednesday night things have gone anywhere from 20 people to four, sometimes three people, you know, I just, uh, but it's always good people. you know, my peeps. So it's good. All right. I, hope it, I mean, I kind of hope it doesn't become too popular actually. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be the only person in the game industry who doesn't want something to be popular. <laughs> I don't like to get too popular, you know, but there's also, I don't know if you're, you were the game industry gathering, which one a GIG. The one that uh, Guy Yug is doing it. Um, it's on Discord. It's a lot of, you should probably be on that one. I, we, you can end this anytime you want and I'll tell you about it. But uh, I'll invite, you have to, you have to reach out to him off, offline. Uh, and then he hits invite only, but it's, it's about 1200 people on there. They meet, they, uh, he does a Friday night, Friday thing that goes for, from 11 to 11 Pacific time. Uh, and it's all around the world and they have, everybody gets together in a mass room and then they par pair everybody off into little groups of four or five for 20 minute sessions. Okay. And it's, Very cool. and it's a good mix. They try to put you with people that they think you might, might click with, but you know, if you're into meeting like streamers and, and marketing people, it's all streamers and marketing people. I don't not, not so much developers, but, uh, it's a pretty interesting group. Sure, I will ask you about that more in just a second once we close out, but I have yeah. one more question and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, yeah. Do we have anything left to talk about? Anything I didn't ask you think we still need to cover? Gosh, you're pretty thorough. <laughs> right, don't you wanna ask me where I think games are gonna be in five years? Uh, I mean, if you want, sure. No, I don't, I don't have a clue. You know, <laughs> my favorite thing about the industry is the fact that, you know, uh, you really don't know where it's where it is until you know where it is and then by the time you figure it out it's somewhere else i mean it's it's so mercurial and it's like having to learn a new business every six months or maybe three months i used to go to gdc and think i had a handle on things and then i go to e i'd go to gdc in march and think i had a handle on things and i go to e3 in june and things would be significantly different in a lot of ways so uh you know you got to be nimble. You got to pay attention, and it's and it's just a great thing. I, I think it's. I, I wouldn't do anything else. I probably would have burned out on law years ago if I hadn't gotten into the game industry. I love it. All yeah. right, Thomas Gallia, thank you so much for coming on with us today. I genuinely do appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is it's been nothing but fun for me. You're welcome. All right, and for everybody else, I'm going to remind you all: don't be just a gamer, be a gamerpreneur. <laughs>